Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. They came to draw water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Then some shepherds arrived and drove them away, but Moses came to the rescue and watered their flock. When they returned to their father, Ruel, he asked, Why have you come back so quickly today? They answered, An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. So where is he? he asked his daughters. Why then did you leave the man behind? Invite him to eat dinner. Moses agreed to stay with the man, and he gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. She gave birth to a son, whom he named Gershom. He said, I have been a resident alien in a foreign land. The Lord instructed Moses, when you go back to Egypt, make sure you go before Pharaoh, all the wonders that I have put within your power. But I will harden his heart so that he won't let the people go. And you will say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me, but you refuse to let him go. Look, I am about to kill your firstborn son. On the trip, at an overnight campsite, it happened that the Lord confronted him and intended to put him to death. So Zipporah took a flint, cut off her son's foreskin, threw it at Moses' feet, and said, You are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. At that time, she said, you are a bridegroom of blood, referring to the circumcision. These are the heads of their father's families, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanak and Palu, Hezron and Carmi. These are the clans of Reuben, the sons of Simeon, Jenuel, Jamin, Ohad and Jachin, Zohar and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the clans of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi according to their family records. Gershom, Kohath, and Merari. Levi lived 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Libni and Shimei, all their clans. The sons of Kohath, Amram, Izhar, Hebron, and Uziel. Kohath lived 133 years. The sons of Merari, Mali, and Mushi, these are the clans of the Levites, according to their family records. Amram married his father's sister, Jochebed, and she bore him Aaron and Moses. Amram lived 137 years. The sons of Izhar, Korhath, and Feheb, Nahab, and Zikri. The sons of Uziel, Mishael, Elzapham, and Sethri. Aaron married Elishaba, daughter of Aminadab, and daughter of Nation. She bore him Nadab and Abihu, Eliezer, and Ithamar. The sons of Korah, Aser, Elkaniah, Abisaiah. These are the sons of the clans of the Korathites. Aaron's son, Eliezer, married one of the daughters of Petuel, and she bore him Phinehas. These are the heads of the Levite families by their clans. It was this Aaron and Moses whom the Lord told, bring the Israelites out of the land of Egypt according to their military divisions. Moses and Aaron were the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, in order to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. We are going to be jumping around to several places in the book of Exodus this morning. Uh, so if you haven't yet, please open your Bibles to Exodus 2. Uh, but we're going to be jumping, as we read, as Heather read for us, to chapter 4 and chapter 6 as well. In any story, there are scenes that are essential to the plot. 
scenes uh, and events that if you were to remove them from the story, you really lose the major plot and the major theme of that story and really don't have a story at all. Essential scenes. Those of you that, you know, if you watched a movie or read a particular novel, you know which scenes these are. But there are also filler scenes. Scenes that aren't necessarily essential to the story, but they help with character development and plot development. If you were to pull these scenes from the story, you really wouldn't lose the major thrust of the plot. You really wouldn't lose the theme. And so they're there. Yeah, they they serve a purpose, but not quite as essential. Poor stories or just okay stories, they don't really do much with those filler scenes. But the best stories, the best stories take those small little filler scenes and do something great with them actually use them to enhance the overall message and theme and plots. They're, they're in many ways, good stories take those filler scenes and they surprise you with just how much is going on, just how important they turn out to be. Well, so far in our series in Exodus, we've been focusing on the central and essential parts of the story. We've been looking at the big scenes, the, the moments that are important to understanding the overall message of Exodus. And if you've been following along, maybe you've noticed that we've passed over or glossed over a few filler scenes. And maybe as we've been going through the story, you've thought, well, well, Pastor Chris, what about those passages? Are we going to talk about those passages? Because one in particular that we're going to look at this morning, it's a little out there. You're like, what's going on there? Seems like God is upset with Moses. And then you have something with circumcision. What, what's happening there? And so this morning, I want to do something a little bit different. Rather than focusing on kind of one major uh, plot arc and kind of focusing on one major point, I want to look at three sort of filler scenes in the story of Exodus and talk about what's going on in those scenes and show that they're actually adding depth and meaning to the story of Exodus, actually uh, bringing beautiful color overall to the story, that there's more going on than would appear. And so one of the passages we're going to look at is this incredible uh, moment of foreshadowing. Another is a bit curious, a little dark in some ways, but actually ends up reinforcing one of the most important points in Exodus about the nature of obedience. And the third feels like this really random family tree drop of Aaron and Moses right into the middle of the story. You're like, what is that doing there? But actually, it serves a very, very important purpose. Not random, not out of blue, but purposeful. And so we're going to look at those three passages this morning and try to answer the question, what about those passages? So the first one, Moses at a well. And here's what we need to first recognize about this passage, that when you read scripture and the more you read scripture, especially the Old Testament, what you're going to find is history has a way of repeating itself. And maybe you've noticed this as you've read more and more scripture. For example, it's curious how many times in scripture an angel shows up to a barren woman declaring, you're going to have a child and this child is going to serve an important purpose. Doesn't just happen once. Doesn't just happen twice. Multiple times in scripture, this event takes place. The the specific details are a little bit different, but the core event happens multiple times in scripture. The great flood in Genesis, the parting of the Red Sea that we're going to see in a couple weeks, Israel crossing the Jordan, 
Multiple times in Scripture, God rescues his people through water that would normally destroy them. This happens repeatedly. In Exodus 3, we have this example where Moses comes across the the Lord in the bush, and he is told, take off your sandals, you're standing on holy ground. I will take out to lunch the first person who comes up to me personally, you have to come up to me personally, and tells me where in the Bible that happened again. You cannot Google it. I will ask you. I will say before the Lord and your pastor, did you Google that or did you know? You don't want to lie to God. You don't want to lie to your pastor. But the first person who can tell me where the angel of the Lord tells another man to take off his sandals because he's standing on holy ground, you can tell me where that happened. I'll take you out to lunch. There are moments, <laughs> there are moments, there are moments that repeat themselves in Scripture, not by accident, not, not just by coincidence, but on purpose. God, like a master artist, sovereignly designs the repetition of events to draw our attention to his plans and purposes in history. And when we look at the unique details of these events, we begin to see important truths that God is emphasizing in his word. And so in Exodus 2, 15 through 22, we read of Moses rescuing a group of women at a well. Moses is a chivalrous dude. He fights off some unruly shepherds, saves the day, and just like out of a good movie, ends up marrying one of the women. It's a cool story, fantastic story. If any of you married couples has a more dramatic way that you met please let me know because we're going to get you up here to tell that story. I mean, this is an incredible way to meet your wife, an incredible passage in the book of Exodus. However, Moses isn't the first man in Scripture to meet his wife at a well. Does anybody else know who else met their wife at a well before Moses? Jacob? And technically speaking, Isaac. Okay? The in Scripture, especially in Genesis and Exodus, meeting your future wife at a well is a thing. It happens multiple times in Scripture. And as uh, Hebrew literary scholar Robert Alter notes, that each of these meeting your future wife at a well stories kind of follows a basic pattern. And here's sort of the pattern that plays out in these stories. The main character, or his surrogate, someone who's standing in his place, finds himself in a foreign land or in the wilderness. Moses is in the wilderness. He's in a foreign land. He's left Egypt, so check. He encounters a young woman at a well. Well, he encounters a group of women, some sisters at a well. Check. Either the man or the woman draws water from a well. That happens in the story. Check. The young woman or the woman with her sisters runs home to tell her father and brings the news of a stranger's arrival. Check. Five. The father invites the main character into his home for a meal. That happens. And then finally, the main character is betrothed to the young woman. If you want to look at the accounts of Isaac and Jacob, you can go to Genesis 24 and Genesis 29, and you'll see this general pattern play out. Details are a little different, but that general pattern is going to play out. But what is unique about this particular instance with Moses? What is unique to the Moses story that shows us the emphasis Of this passage? What are the unique details? Well, we don't have time to go to the other two passages and kind of compare, but the good news is we don't have to. This passage actually gives us the relevant and pertinent details, and it does so through a bit of repetition and dialogue. 
In biblical narrative, anytime you see someone starting to talk, anytime narrative just sort of pops in the middle of sort of plot, pay attention to what's being said. And so the daughters run home. Their father goes, what are you doing back so early? And what do they say in particular? What are the details that they highlight about what Moses did that shows us the emphasis of this passage? They say, an Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. Like Isaac and Jacob, Moses met his wife at a well, but he didn't just meet her. He rescued her. He saved her. This is unique to the story of Moses, that he actually rescues his bride at the well. And then he also waters the flock. He provides nourishment for the flock that these sisters were in charge of. And so the story of Moses here, this this account in Exodus chapter 2 of how he met his wife, this is actually a bit of foreshadowing of our story, where we get to see Moses at a certain time and a foreshadow of his ministry. This sort of reminds me of the scene, for those of you that love Marvel movies, uh, the the first Captain America movie. And so there's a scene early in the movie before he takes the super serum and becomes Captain America, and he's just kind of a scrawny dude, and he's fighting this bully who was causing a problem in a movie theater, and this bully's just pounding him. And at one point, he picks up this garbage can lid and holds it up as a shield, like this really scrawny guy, and it's just kind of a pathetic scene. But in that moment, you see the future hero that Steve Rogers is going to become. You see a foreshadowing of the greater hero, the greater soldier, the greater shield he was going to wield. And in Exodus 2, we see that happening with Moses. A picture of the greater man and ministry that God was going to bring through Moses. The same Moses that rescued his bride at the well was going to be the Moses that led the people of God out of slavery. The Moses who watered his future sister-in-law's flocks was was the same Moses that God used to bring water from a rock in the wilderness. This scene is a bit like Steve Rogers holding up that trash can, foreshadowing who he'd be. Moses, a picture of Moses, and who God was going to make him, and who God was going, what God was going to do through him. Yes, Moses was a world-class jackball. Complete screw-up in many ways. But, God was going to use him in a world-changing, history-defining way. And we get a glimpse of that here, a bit of foreshadowing. But, and this is where it gets really good, the greater ministry of Moses isn't the only thing that this passage is foreshadowing for us. It's pointing past something, pointing past Moses into something greater. The ministry of Moses, as great and powerful as it was, is itself but a foreshadow of even greater ministry of Jesus Christ. See, throughout the book of Exodus, we see Moses as redeemer and prophet and priest and lawgiver. And in all of those roles, what Moses is doing is he is pointing to the greater ministry of Jesus as redeemer, as prophet, as priest, and as lawgiver. And this passage is no different. This passage, while it is focusing in on Moses, points past the ministry of Moses to a greater ministry. For what does Ephesians 5, 25 and 26 tell us about Jesus? It says that Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. 
Moses rescued his bride, Sipporah. Jesus rescues his bride, the church. Moses watered the flock and Moses gave the people of God water in the wilderness. Jesus gives water of his word to his people. Moses rescued his bride by fighting off some unruly shepherds. Jesus rescues his bride by fighting and defeating sin and death. Moses gave, a wa- gave water that was physically life-giving. Jesus gives water that springs up inside of us to eternal life. He gives us the water of his word by which he washes us and cleanses us. Moses' ministry was great. Jesus' was greater. And this passage points us to that. A beautiful piece of foreshadowing here in the book of Exodus. Our next passage in Exodus 4 might be the most puzzling in the entire book. This passage leaves us with a ton of questions. It pops up in kind of a random spot. And we're left wondering, what in the world is going on? Look, I didn't even put this in the Bible study. So sorry, ladies, we didn't get to this. Hopefully you had some questions. We're going to try to answer that this morning. Men, now you know. So one of the challenges of this passage is it's not 100% clear who is being talked about here. And so on the, the way back to Egypt, Moses and his family are heading back to Egypt And verse 24 says, the Lord confronted him and intended to put him to death. The him in the passage, it's not entirely clear. Scholars have debated back and forth. Some think it's Moses' son, some think it's Moses himself. And there are good arguments on both sides. But it's not 100% clear. But what is clear is whatever this issue was, it gets resolved when Zipporah circumcises their son. And so... Understand that the overall point of this passage doesn't change regardless of who the him is. It's still the same, same point. But I would argue it makes the most sense that the him in this passage is Moses' son. Here's why. If you look at the, the broader context of this passage and just go a few verses before this, here's what God says to Moses. And you will say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. I told you, let my son go that he may worship me, but you you refuse to let him go. Look, I am about to kill your firstborn son. So God is going to command Pharaoh through Moses to let his people go. And he calls Israel my son. Let my son go. You're holding my son hostage. Let him go. Just a little bit of a side note. Like God is father. It's in the Old Testament. Like the New Testament turns the volume up, way up on that, but we find it even in the Old Testament, God relates to his people as a father. And he commands Pharaoh, let my son go. And God declares, hey, Pharaoh is not going to do that. And so the the punishment for not listening, for disobeying the word of the Lord is going to be the death of the firstborn. And so this is foreshadowing the final plague and the death of the firstborn in Egypt, but it's also creating this category of judgment. One of the ways that God judges is through the death of the firstborn. And so we jump to Moses and his family on the way back to Egypt, and we have a situation where God is about ready to execute judgment. He's about ready to take someone's life. And whose death, what category of death is sort of in view here? The death of a firstborn. 
And so that's why I believe it makes the most sense that the death that is in view is the death of Moses' son. Now, why does God want to kill him? Why is God out to judge and bring death? This is a hard passage to swallow. What, what is going on here? It's because Moses' son was not circumcised. Not circumcised. So this raises another question. What's the big deal about circumcision? And why would not being circumcised here warrant a death sentence? Well, as we read in Genesis 17, when God gives circumcision to Abraham, this was a sign of the covenant God made with Abraham. And so Abraham and all his male descendants were to be circumcised as a sign and a seal of God's promises to them and their faith in God's promise. So circumcision marked them as the people of God who were then to walk in obedience to God. And so as God says in Genesis 17, 14, if any male is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that man will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. To not be circumcised or to not circumcise your son was to reject the promises of God was to say, I don't believe that promise. I am not going to identify with the people of God. I'm not going to be obedient to God. And so not being circumcised was stiff-arming God. It was rejecting God. It was rejecting his promises, his grace, his love, his mercy. It was rejecting belonging to his people. No small thing to not be circumcised. And Moses, as an Israelite, he stood under the covenant of God. He had obligations to the Lord. As one of God's people, he was called to faithful obedience. But at the level of central identity, he failed to follow through. At the level of who do you most identify with, Moses? Whose covenant are you living under? Whose promises define you? He had failed. At the place of fundamental obedience, he had chosen not to be faithful. Why? We don't know. We can come up with some possible explanations, but we really don't know. All we do know is that Moses had failed to be obedient in the way that he needed to be. And this was no small thing. So God was about to execute judgment. Now it helps to understand, helps to understand that this story sits in the larger context of chapters three and four. And if you remember in these chapters, God is calling Moses as the leader and redeemer of God's people. And do you remember what the main point was, especially in chapter 4 that we looked at? Is that through the Lord, you are never too broken to be obedient. And so the obedience of Moses is in view here. It's the focus. Is Moses going to be obedient to God, obedient to the call, or is he going to reject it and run away? And so this passage, when we recognize that the whole context of these chapters has to do with the obedience of Moses, that's what's at stake here, we recognize, whoa, yeah, Moses had decided to go back to Egypt, but he was still coming up short in his obedience. He was still failing to be obedient fully to the Lord. And so this passage, we understand it better when we consider the context that it is in. So context is an important part of interpreting scripture well, but we also see this isn't here to confuse you. It's not here to just go, oh, that's kind of a weird story. Let's move on. No, it deepens the message. It shows just 
how far obedience needs to go, the extent to which God was calling Moses to be obedient, the extent which he had failed and yet needed to repent and submit to. And so the question for us, when we look at this passage, do we take obedience seriously? Like, does obedience really matter in our minds? Do, do we take the holiness and the authority of God seriously? Are, are we careless and flippant with the promises of God as Moses was being? Do, do we chase identity in things other than the glory of God? Are we humbled and are we silenced before the death sentence that our sin deserves? I mean, this, this passage is sobering, it's humbling. However, at the same time, we see in this passage a glimpse of the hope of the gospel. The the judgment that is the death of the firstborn. We see the severity of sin in that. But we also get a glimpse of just how far God went to save us from our sin. Because when we recognize that the death of a firstborn is a way God executed a judgment, it starts to make sense of our salvation in Christ. Because God the Father in love, what did he do? He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to take our judgment, to die in our place. The, The death that you and I deserve because of our sin, God's son took that. God judged us, God judged his son in our place so that we could be forgiven and set free from sin. Our salvation, our life, our freedom, our joy are found when we put our trust in the son of God, the one who takes our judgment, the one who willingly laid down his life on a cross, the one who fully took the wrath of God and paid for our sin in full. And how does, that, how does God relent in Exodus 4? It's when Zipporah circumcises their son and, and she does this thing where she, she throws the foreskin, it says throws the foreskin at Moses' feet. Now, I want you to go home and research what's actually going on there because she doesn't throw it at his feet. That's a euphemism for something else. I'll let you go figure out what that means. But in that act, what Zipporah is doing is she's saying, Now we are putting ourselves fully under the promises of God, fully under the covenant of God. It's this sort of ceremonial moment. And and yes, it was bloody. Blood had to be shed. But in that moment, Moses' family was fully submitting to the promises of God and the covenant of God. And what does Romans 4 tell us about this covenant? It was made in grace. God gave it to his people in grace. They were accepting the grace and the promises of God. And it's the same for us. When we put our trust in Christ, when we put our faith in the fully obedient son, Jesus Christ, then we experience forgiveness from the guilt of sin and the freedom from the power of sin. And then what's also great about the gospel is that when we are transformed by Christ, we get the Holy Spirit and now we're empowered to walk in obedience. We take obedience seriously because of the grace of God. Look, the gospel doesn't turn the volume down on obedience. It turns it up. Because if you're in Christ, guess what? You have the Holy Spirit. Yes, you're weak. Yes, you're broken. Yes, until Christ returns, we will struggle. But through the Lord, you're never too broken to be obedient. Because of the Holy Spirit. 
oh, this passage is sobering, but it gives us a glimpse of, glimpse of gospel hope. Finally, passage at the end of chapter 6 is a little bit of genealogy for us. Now, in the context of chapter 6, Moses had confronted Pharaoh. This was in chapter 5. Uh, he demanded that uh, Pharaoh let God's people go. And if you remember a couple weeks ago, Pharaoh laughs in Moses' face. He makes the slavery of Israel even worse. The people of Israel are despairing and they don't even believe the promises of God anymore. Moses is despairing and he's like, God, you haven't rescued your people. What are you doing? Why did you send me? And so there's this moment where it feels like the whole thing is on the brink. And right at that moment where there's this point of high drama and high tension, genealogy? <laughs> what? <laughs> it's a bit curious. Well, what, what, what's going on? Why, why is there genealogy? feels a bit random. And also, aren't genealogies the boring part of the Bible that you just sort of skip over when you're reading? You're like, oh, list of names, fine, I'll just kind of skim through that, don't really need to know what's going on there. Oh, but friends, here, here's, here's what's awesome about Scripture. Nothing's random. <laughs> Nothing's random. Yes, we may not fully understand all the details, but when we grasp the purpose of it, Oh, it's going to make scripture come alive in ways that maybe you've missed before. This is not random. It's not boring if we understand the purpose of genealogies in the Bible. And so let's, let's take a couple minutes here and just consider what, why? What, what are genealogies doing in scripture? Well, at a most basic level, just like with any family tree, genealogies are recorded history, tracing a family line from one person to another. But here's what we need to keep in mind about Scripture and the history Scripture records. It's theological history. Like history, they're historical facts to be sure. It's, it's real life history. These are people who really live. These things really happened. But Scripture records them not just to record historical facts, but to make a point about God and his purposes in the world. It's there to point you to something that God is up to, something about salvation history. And so paying attention to what the genealogies are telling us and showing us are important. Now, in the case of Moses, tracing his family line does something really important. You can imagine Moses as a dual citizen. When, when, in, when Moses was writing this, he was in the wilderness with the people of Israel, and they were having it out, they were having fights, and there were people who doubted him. But they probably called into question his rights to lead the people of God. Moses, are you really a part of Israel or did you just make this up? Because you spent a lot of time in Pharaoh's household. Are you legit? And so what this genealogy does is it shows Moses and Aaron's credentials. Yes, born, and born into the family of Israel, a descendant of Abraham through the tribe of Levi. And so this, this genealogy validated Moses as a part of Israel and also as a member of the tribe of Levi. It validated him as a priest and Aaron as a priest. Later in scripture, in the, when they're wandering in the wilderness, God establishes the tribe of Levi as those who would serve priests as priests of Israel. To be a priest, you had to be from the tribe of Levi. And so if Moses wanted to act like a priest and he wasn't of the tribe of Levi, there would have been a problem. 
but showing his genealogy shows he's legit. It's his credentials. So in one sense, genealogies serve as credentials legitimizing the identity and ministry of a particular person. But this is not all that they are. More than tracing family lineage, genealogies trace redemptive faithfulness. Let me say this again. More than tracing family lineage, genealogies are tracing redemptive faithfulness. Genealogies are a way that we get to see the faithfulness of God unpacked and flow through history. Let me explain what I mean. How do we know this? Because early in the book of Genesis, when when we first sort of introduced to an idea of genealogy, it comes in the context of God giving a promise. So after Adam and Eve fall into sin, God pronounces judgment, but he also makes this prophetic promise in Genesis 3.15. He declares that a child would be born of the woman, and this child would strike the head of the serpent, who is the devil, even as the serpent would strike his head. And so there's going to be a descendant that comes from Eve that ultimately defeats and destroys the work of the devil. And so right here, right at the beginning of Scripture, we're told, pay attention to the genealogies. Pay attention to how this plays out in a family line because you're looking for a particular descendant. You're looking for the seed of a woman who is going to change everything, who is going to defeat the power of sin and evil. And so the whole concept of genealogy is set up for us to understand in the context of promise. And so when we trace genealogies, we're tracing redemptive faithfulness. And we see this play out in the genealogy of Abraham. We see that God's promise of a descendant that traced back to Genesis 3 was going to pass through the bloodline of Abraham. In the genealogy of Moses, We see God fulfilling his promise to rescue the descendants of Abraham out of slavery, raising up from among them their people, raising up from among their people a redeemer and a leader. In the genealogy of King David, found in 1 Chronicles, we see God's faithfulness to raise up a godly king who would serve and save the people of Israel. Over and over and over again, genealogies teach us, trace the faithfulness of God. So, Why is this genealogy at the end of chapter 6? Well, it may be helpful to first think of it this way. So so prior to like Netflix and Hulu and Disney Plus, when when you wanted to watch TV, you had to do this thing called commercial breaks. You guys remember that? (laughs) Sometimes, you know, you can still watch them on, on basic cable, but aren't they annoying? Like you watch basic and like, I have to sit through commercials? No way. Let me get back on Netflix. So TV shows had these commercial breaks, and the best TV shows recognized that you wanted to sort of have that break in the narrative at this high point of drama, keep you on the edge of your seat, sort of a mini cliffhanger, so you would come back after the commercial break. Well, we can think of the end of chapter 6 into the beginning of chapter 7, a bit like a commercial break. The story builds to this high moment of drama and tension, Moses and Israel despairing. Pharaoh is more more determined than ever to to put his foot on the neck of Israel. And right there, Moses, in, in, in authoring the book of Exodus, sort of takes a break. He pauses. And he pauses here to establish his credentials. 
to, to, to let Israel and those who would read this know, hey, what's coming forward, the ministry that's going to happen, look, I'm legit. I'm legit. So establishing those credentials before the story moves forward, before we come out of commercial break. But even more than that, what's happening at this moment? Remember, a couple weeks ago, Israel's despairing. Moses is despairing. At this point in the story, there is great tension. God, are you going to keep your promises? Here comes a genealogy. Trace the faithfulness. Trace the redemptive faithfulness. Look at how I have acted in history through the line of Abraham. This person and this person and this person. And there's a lot more going on in that genealogy than just Moses. But ultimately, it leads to this point. God raising up Moses and Aaron his faithfulness to save. This genealogy comes to strengthen Israel to trust in the promises of God. That's why it comes, not random, very much purposeful in where it comes. And understanding these genealogies sheds some light on how we understand the genealogy of Jesus in the Gospels. You see, in, in the genealogies of Christ, we, we trace God's faithfulness to the fullest, the genealogy found in Matthew 1, 2 through 16. I, I didn't put the whole thing up there, but this is how Matthew traces the genealogy of Jesus. He starts with Abraham, then moves through King David, and then to Jesus' father, Joseph. And Matthew traces Jesus' lineage through David back to Abraham, which legitimizes Jesus as king, and then also legitimizes as Jesus as the one who's the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 22, where he said, your offspring, singular, through your offspring, all the world will be blessed. Jesus is that offspring. The genealogy of Christ legitimizes his ministry, but also shows the faithfulness of God through the ages to bring the Messiah. Same thing in Luke. The way Luke traces Jesus' genealogy goes from the son of Joseph, so Jesus' father, to the son of David, to the son of Abraham, all the way back to the son of Adam, meaning the promised descendant of the woman who would crush and, and strike the serpent's head, that's Jesus. God has fulfilled his faithful promise. That genealogy we've been waiting for since, since the fall, here it is fulfilled. You trace all that faithfulness down through the ages, here where you're going to find Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of that faithfulness. This is what the genealogy shows us. Christ the king, Christ the promised one, Christ the seed of the woman who would destroy the works of the devil. Yes, the serpent struck his heel. Jesus was crucified and ki killed, but in his glorious resurrection, he strikes the head of the serpent. He crushes the head of the serpent, defeating Satan and sin and all evil forever. When we understand genealogies, what they're doing in Scripture, well, we see the faithfulness of God. We see he is a God who makes promises and keeps promises. Pay attention to the genealogies. Trace their, the faithfulness of God. So, three filler passages that deepen the message of Exodus and really add beautiful color to the story. These are three passages that ultimately point us to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So here's the question for us in light of these passages. Do we, do you, do I, do we trust him? Like when we see how God has woven his faithfulness 
into these various accounts, when we see the way that these accounts ultimately point us to his faithfulness in Christ, do we trust him? Do we take God at his word? Layer upon layer upon layer of God's faithfulness. Do we trust him? Is our life, our identity, our joy found in him? Are we turning from our sin and selfishness and pride and turning to him? Do our hearts overflow in worship, in obedience to him? Do we find him good and glorious and worthy of all our worship and obedience? Because he is. In light of all these passages hold out for us in light of what passage after passage and scene after scene and story after story and Exodus declare to us, do we trust him? Friends, for City Church, in light of the faithfulness of our God, in light of the rich, manifold ways his word holds out his faithfulness to us in ways big and small, in ways obvious and subtle, God has spared no expense to communicate to you his faithfulness. He has shown it in so many ways, beautiful and obvious and subtle and symbolic. God is trying to hit every aspect of your being, your cognitive and your emotional. God, is, his word is constructed to give you this overall impression. Hey, with every bit of communication that I can give, I'm communicating to you. I'm faithful. This being the case, this being his word, let us be a church that overflows in worship and obedience to our God. Amen. Let's pray.